half minutes yeah. to do anything with it. You'd have to burn the whole CD. With yeah, and you couldn't then rewrite over it. But with a mini disc, the world was the world your, was your oyster. Your proverbial oyster. Anyway, so are we not allowed to be in the same room? So apparently we're not allowed to be in the same room. Who says we're not allowed to be in the same room? That somebody decided that you have a pathological hatred for Manchester City. Is this someone on Twitter? (laughs) One person on Twitter. I'm going to find this tweet. It sounds very exciting. And because you are a city shill. Apparently I'm employed by Manchester City, although I think you'll understand very very, uh, easily, Rory, that uh, as a uh, self-employed freelance presenter, nobody employs me. Well, I'm... I'm, Exactly, you can't be tamed. The... um, the, He's I'm employed sh- by Manchester City in the same way as you're employed by, by the, the BBC. BBC. Yes, yes, exactly. exactly yeah, Which yeah. We've, we, we have demonstrated we, in the past is absolutely not true. true. <laughs> I am uh, HMRC, as far as they're concerned. Manchester City do, do not employ you, and the BBC do not employ me. Quite not. Look, exactly. they, they do engage Ferris Wheel Media Limited on an occasion to provide them with presenting services. And we should, we should, <laughs> we should point out at this stage that Ferris Wheel Media Limited is available for bar mitzvahs, <laughs> for birthdays, <laughs> for funerals, for weddings. I I'm not sure you'd want him for a funeral. Do you not think? What, that, I'm, I'm way too up. That chippy, <laughs> happy-go-lucky sort of Sometimes that's what you need. I mean, you wouldn't want him doing the service, but <laughs> he could do the wake. Chinch is convinced that if he dies, we will all do a eulogy for him. The problem is, is he's got too used to being jubilant about things being carried in in urn-shaped objects. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> Probably not a good time and for And here it. we have Derek. And, and here comes Derek. Oh, no. I've, I've just been told that the running order is now being ignored by Derek, even though he's dead. Yeah. Thank you very much for contributing. This is in no way related to Hugh's frustrations <laughs> professionally recently. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. Uh, the food um, has almost completely been um, consumed, even at this early stage. I have one... Half of a bagel with cream cheese and smoked cha- smoked salmon on it. That is oat and beach smoked salmon. Oak and beak. Oak beak. and beak. It's not oak beak. and beak. Oak and beak sounds like uh, a place that you would go to in New Jersey. It sounds like a suburb of Brussels. <laughs> or so, something that walkers would call the crisps that taste a little bit like that. Yes, yeah, yeah. Rory, thank you. They were magnificent, which uh, can be explained by the chopping board, which is currently empty of all bagels. Steve did not have cream cheese, just for those of you keeping updated uh, with all the important (laughs) lubrication news. What counts as lubrication? (laughs) Cream cheese counts as lubrication. Cream cheese, tick. Joining me, Hugh Ferris, are Stephen Wyeth, Summer Breeze Makes Me Feel Fine, and Rory Smith, Blowing Through the Jasmine in My Mind. There is no Andy Hinchcliffe for predictable pre-playoff weekend reasons. He's been working on his tactics board out in Portugal, and yet there is a soccer story which has been kindly provided by Chinch at an earlier date. He speaks to us from the past. Um, using all manner of incredible technology known as recording. But not a mini disc. Not on a mini disc. It's sort of taken us two and a half years to work out the ability to sort of pre produce certain segments <laughs> for podcasts when Chinch isn't going to be around. And to think people have a pop at the BBC. Yeah. They do a load of pre production. Don't they? They're always recording stuff and putting it out on air later. Exactly. Bags. EastEnders, not live. <laughs> Is that right? Well, they <laughs> tried it once. There speaks uh, the BBC employee, yes. Rory Sinclair-Smith. Actually, funnily enough, uh, coming up next week, a pre-recorded section from Rory about something that he cannot contribute to live. Yes, exactly. That's true, yes. Um, you can get in touch with the podcast, um, either live or indeed in delay, at setpiecemenu, setpiecemenu at gmail.com, or also on Facebook. The first email this week comes from Stephen Platt, who is in Perth. Australia, and follows on from the conversation we've been having with our professor in Boulder, Colorado, John Dillon. Prof John. Stephen writes, Dear Andy, Hugh, Rory and Stephen, 
Thank you very much for making such a lovely podcast, providing a much-needed silver lining to the ever-darkening rain clouds that supporting Manchester United has become this season. I wanted to share an idea I've had for decreasing the number of matches that become end-of-season dead rubbers. Would the EPL benefit, perhaps, from awarding an additional point to teams that secure an aggregate win over their opponents in a home-and-away matchup throughout the regular season. For example, Manchester City would receive an additional point to their end-of-season tally for the aggregate 2-1 victory they secured over Liverpool in their two matches this season. If scores are tied after the two matches, the side with the most away goals gets the point, which infuriates Steve even before he's heard the whole thesis here. Yeah. In the case where there is no away goals advantage, neither side is awarded a point. I was curious to see what effect this would have on the outcome of the league table, so once the season ended, I did the maths. As it turns out... Not too much has changed. City still pipped Liverpool to the title by one point, with both sides collecting 18 out of a possible 19 aggregate points. The bottom three are still relegated in the order they are now. The biggest change comes in the race for the top four, where Chelsea drop out of the Champions League places, allowing Spurs and Arsenal to claim third and fourth respectively. Chelsea's paltry nine additional aggregate points is the worst of the top six. Wolves and Leicester, 11 each, outperform them. Please see the table below for the updated points and placements. I'm not going to read them all out, but he has done it, and it's incredibly hard work. Thank you very much indeed, Stephen. Does anyone on the panel think that this method would be a good idea to introduce into league football? Would it make those key clashes between sides near each other in the table all the more entertaining if teams knew a win by a certain number of goals margin would see them gain an additional point on their rival? Or does the fact that the only thing this aggregate system changes is the outcome of an incredibly tight top four race indicate that the current league format works? Kind regards, Stephen. So we're having all sorts of people suggesting all sorts of different ways mm. of changing all sorts of things. Stephen? As long I'm, as there's no, no away goal. Not in favour of anything that complicates the points accumulation system, as we discussed uh, regarding the uh, the suggestions from our friend in, in Colorado. Prof John. However, you could slightly diversify that idea and employ what they use in Serie A, which is to use head-to-head records yeah. rather than goal difference to decide in which order teams finish if they are level on points because then in terms of you know from the suggestion of Stephen there the that it would have had the biggest impact in terms of the race for the big four well yes that would add greater significance to games between from the season just finished Tottenham Arsenal Chelsea and Manchester United because depending on how those games had finished might have had an influence on in which order they finished in European qualification yeah I, I generally prefer head-to-head to goal difference I think they do it in Spain as well, don't they? Yeah, I think they do it. In, I think most countries are head-to-head. I might, I'm, I'm prepared to be wrong on that, but I think most countries settle levels. Teams are level on points with head-to-head, and it does make it kind of makes more sense. Just that that does suggest that you know the the, the better out of those two teams will finish top. What happens if you give if you make wins worth four points and draws worth two? That is a question that requires a large chunk of silence for us to work out and then to edit out that silence and bring the answer, which we're not going to do. I am hoping that someone else will do that for okay, us. Okay, thank you very much indeed. That is the challenge. If you could please reply to Rory. But in terms of, of the other Stephen, uh, Perth Stephen, um, the problem that no, no matter what you do, it's not going to change the fact that you have like 13 teams in the, in the middle of the table who have nothing to play for from about February onwards. I think, from, from what I can tell, it's about six six of the 20 teams are in a different position, uh, and that's it. And the bottom, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight are all correct. But there's still this massive gap between like sixth and seventh, and between, I don't know, 14th, 15th. Yeah, you don't want too much changing, so I suppose that's why no, but it is, might it, augment if, it if slightly. The, if, the, if the idea is to try and encourage games at the end of the season to mean something... Sadly, this does not work. We have not one, but two emails about goal nets. I think if anything we've discussed has come close to being fetishised, 
it is indeed goal net. Yeah. Andrew Everett says, Good afternoon, gents. I'm very much looking forward to the goal net episode, which has not at any point been promised. <laughs> uh, although there seems to be a groundswell of opinion, at least. Uh, Rory has pretty much nailed it with the USA 94 nomination. Uh, but I would also like to throw this into the mix. Bari, from the early to mid-90s, I think they even went to the trouble of having a hexagonal net pattern. But I think I might be getting carried away now. Remember Bari's nets from the early 90s, anyone? Bari, famously, are my Italian team. So, yes, I do. That and is, do and you love them in the same way that you love the USA the nets, 94 net? If you, there, there is an Edor Protti doll from a game in it's a 4 1 winning it's Inter in, I think, 1995 that he hit. So, Edor Protti scored 24 dolls in that season. I think, that, I think it was the 94 95 season. He'd done nothing before, he did very little afterwards, moved to Lazio, did nothing, ended up as kind of a cult hero at Livorno, but he scored 24 dolls that season, and they were all the same goal. They were there is a, there's a video on YouTube a compilation of them. They are he he he's on the left. He trots inside with his right foot. He shoots into the near post. Is it that sort of trots back? Doesn't go for the far corner. Goes for the near corner, and he scored that goal twenty four times or like twenty times with some penalties. Works for I and Robin. Why shouldn't it work for anybody <laughs> exactly. else? Exactly. <laughs> People call it the Robin. I call it the Protty. But um, against Inter, he scored from about thirty five yards. It was slightly different because it went. Th- it almost went through Gianluca Pagliuca. But the um, the the goal looks even better because it travels 30 yards, say, on the pitch, and then it travels another 15 or 16 into the net, because <laughs> they're so far back. <laughs> they, yeah, I, I'm with any mention. Of, we, sh- we should do an entire episode both about and from Bari. <laughs> so I'm, I'm uh, understanding now by the, uh, the fact that you like the USA 94 and the, the Bari nets that you like a deep net. You want a deep net. Hugh, if, if people need to know anything about me, apart from my pathological hatred of various <laughs> football clubs, it is that I like anything that billows. The, the deep nets at Wembley are too taut for your liking, I would imagine. Yeah, I, don't, I don't like them oh. to prang out. Okay, I don't like so you need, you out. need some sag. I want Depth it. and sag. Yeah, billowing. <laughs> Mark Ridley also writes, Dear Shane Long's fan club. So that you is do, just me. You, you love things, but you also hate things. Um, regarding episode 127... At the start, an emailer suggested goal nets as a suitable topic for an upcoming episode. You briefly discussed your dislike of the nets at Chelsea and the Dell. At Chelsea? Um, because I think Steve mentioned about Chelsea because it looked incongruous because there was a car park behind it. Yeah, it wasn't so much the nets as the, the, as the distance the, between the, the goals and the stand, which was the issue. And Mark says that we thought that that, that meant insufficient, insufficient material for a full podcast. I have a suggestion, though, he says, that in the Premier League from next season, there should be no material i.e. the removal of goal nets. With the success of goal line technology and the introduction of VAR, a goal will only be confirmed when a ball goes in the goal and confirmed by VAR. Each team could have displayed on their jumbotrons, uh, big screens, VAR and GLT for goal line technology with a red and green light against each. Only when two green lights appear simultaneously will a goal be confirmed. That's from Mark Ridley. Imagine the drama. That is, do you know what? <laughs> That's awful. It, I mean, it's clearly but, also, most, but also brilliant. The, the, the most satisfying thing about sports where the goals have nets is where the object that is propelled into the goal strikes the net. Why would you take that away? Well, <laughs> so point. two reasons. One, imagine the drama. So the, the one green light goes on, the entire crowd goes, ooh. ooh. And then the second one goes on and everyone erupts. It'd be fantastic. But the other, the other, you know, we already have that when the ball hits the net. You know, yeah. the, the, the crowd erupts the, at that point. The other interesting point there is, I, goal, goal nets must have been invented 
effectively as a way of confirming the ball had gone into the had gone through the posts. That must be yes, why they were invented. Sight lines would be impossible yeah. to, to, to guarantee that you so knew. Well, it's time. because goalkeepers were always the most overweight player on the pitch. So why would you have the most overweight person available chasing the ball all the time? I suppose it, yeah, it, it potentially could be to. Um, to prevent the goalkeeper having to run off to get the ball, but the, <laughs> that's the reason they're playing a goal in the first place. The logic to to Mark's suggestion then is that if you don't need nets to confirm that the ball's gone in the goal, then you can get rid of the nets. So it is a logical suggestion. Yeah, there whether is it's a, whether it's one that uh, that the entire panel agrees with. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, not let's there. not do it. But there is a logic to it. I would get, like to see it at least. For, you can for, get technology to do these things for you now. But in terms of those campaigning for us to do a podcast on goal nets, <laughs> there are publications with images pictures available that i think would probably greater satisfy your need Possibly, maybe yeah. maybe that maybe the uh, the guys at mundial magazine or 442 can do something on uh it's, on that, it's very much on up mundial street yeah, I would yeah, say, yeah. yeah. so we've had stadium porn next net porn uh, can i also just say thank you to everyone who emails in with a podcast topic suggestion i promise you they are all being very fastidiously logged and we'll get round to them, uh, mainly because they are all better than the ideas that we are able to come up with ourselves. So keep them coming, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Let us henceforth consider our subject for today. It is this. If there's anything as inevitable as the newspaper headlines of full English to accompany the story of four Premier League teams reaching the European finals this season, it is the follow-up about how few tickets the teams are going to get, how much those tickets are going to cost fans, how difficult it is to get to the venue, and how ridiculous all of that is. If you're listening to this pod as contemporaneously as is humanly possible, the Europa League final is just under a week today. It's in Baku. Chelsea and Arsenal have been given 6,000 tickets each for fans, and the stadium holds more than 60,000. Oh, and UEFA have admitted Baku Airport is basically incapable of dealing with a massive influx of visitors anyway. The moment the Champions League finalists were known, EasyJet whacked up the cost of a flight to Madrid to nearly £800, and hotels had set you back a four-figure sum. That's before you even get a restricted view ticket at the Wanda Metropolitano for £400. Now, UEFA would tell you it's all been very carefully scoped out and planned for. Logistical planning dictates that there will be certain limitations, especially for the Europa League final, which they've described as having a responsible ticket allocation. They would also no doubt argue the staging of these finals gives them a great opportunity to spread the game far and wide across the continent. A message that jars a little with plans apparently in the offing to strengthen even further the big club's stranglehold on the Champions League, therefore marginalising teams from those very countries UEFA wants to be seen to be enfranchising with host venues. Given all this, and so much more, just who are UEFA's priority? That's a really good point that I hadn't thought of before. That Even before we start, there's a good point. That's, that's sensational. That UEFA have got this thing of wanting to take the finals to lots of different places. The best example being the Super Cup, which is generally played in smaller stadiums in smaller cities. So Stropia, I think Tbilisi is, it might be Tbilisi, I think it's Istanbul this year, but not in the Ataturk. I think it's in the Vodafone Arena, the Besiktas Stadium. I think there has been one in Tbilisi relatively recently. They want to spread it around. The Europa League is in Baku for that, for that, for that, log, that same logic. And yet they are basically saying, Alexander Seferin, who I broadly like, the, the president of UEFA, has basically come out and said that the, the bid leads should pay money to the smaller leads from their TV deals to reflect the fact that the big leads are stifling the growth of the smaller leads. So if you think about fans in Azerbaijan, they are more likely to want to watch during the course of a week uh, Real Madrid or Barcelona or Manchester City or Manchester United than they are Nefci Baku. Uh, so there's an effect, effect, there's an impact on attendances and on TV rights and stuff domestically, which Seferin says should be offset by the bid leads paying money, but UEFA are effectively doing exactly the same thing by taking their major showpiece finals to these countries 
to kind of as kind of I don't know like a sporting colonialism, but at the same time basically saying we don't really want you in these competitions. That's yeah that I, that had not occurred to me, Hugh. You are a very wise man. Yes. Why why grow the game in terms of trying to reach parts of the continent that don't get the exposure to to top level continental football whilst at the same time contemplating ideas that would further restrict the involvement even of the likes of Ajax yeah. in the Champions League it, it, it is a it is a, a conundrum of their own creation I think the problem you have got is that um, I thought about this quite a lot last in the last couple of weeks because of the the proposals for the Champions League obviously because it's, champ- it's final season and because of the FFP thing with City the problem they've got is that there are basically too many vested interests and too many competing agendas that they have to try and marry up. So it's really, really hard to, to ever to sympathise with UEFA. We're, we're all kind of conditioned to think UEFA, FIFA, Conmebol, CONCACAF, they're, they're all bad. They're all they're all doing bad things. They're all making bad decisions. They're, they're really bad. But if you think about all the stuff that, that UEFA have to try and weigh up, it's, it's basically impossible. So this isn't necessarily to do with the finals themselves, but you have... The big clubs want more money. They want to make. They want. They they think they are convinced that UEFA do not give them as much money as they could from the Champions League. That there is a way of making that more lucrative and profitable. And they spend a lot of time threatening. Yeah. To break away. To break away. So, and the idea that the 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 constant threat is the, is the Super League, which the, where the clubs basically would get all the money themselves. Although I actually had a chat with someone a few days ago who made the point that if you think about how much money they would need to make from their first TV deal just to be in the same situation as they all are now, it's extraordinary. They need about four billion a year, which is more than the Premier League gets, from their very first TV deal to make sure that all the clubs make as much money as they think they're going to make, which is an interesting point. But so you've got the big clubs want to make more money, the big leads, and this is this is under represented when when UEFA came out with those proposals the, the leads all came out and said no this is disgraceful Strudemore said it Javier Tabas said it the head of La Liga uh, the, I think the, the Bundesliga and the Bundesliga Zwei both came up with with objections I think the the Ligue de football professionnel in France that's in French uh, uh, said why did you only do do that for the French why could you not because do I did Zwei <laughs> I did Zwei oh, what on. more do you want counting to two the, in German the, I did count to 11 same, in German the um they came out with a statement. But they're, they're acting through self-interest as well, because what the, what the reason they don't want a Super League is not because, oh, because it's domestic football, it's the bedrock of competition. It's because that's how they make their money. If they, they don't want Man United and Arsenal and Liverpool and Chelsea all rocketing off into the sunset, because that's, that, that will affect their own income. But also they have to represent the views of, say, their 20 members, whereas it's only the top three or four clubs who are engaged by this idea of having a, a European Super League because they want to make sure they're involved in it every season. So that's, as Rory says, there's so many conflicting principles going around from those that run domestic football compared to those that run continental football and those that want a larger slice of the pie that it's almost impossible to satisfy everybody's desires. There is also UEFA's own agenda, which is they want to retain control. There is the the ECA, which theoretically represents 250 clubs from across Europe, who in theory, have to reflect the views of all their members. And then there are the smaller leads. So the, uh, I think one of the ECA vice chairmen is, po- is Polish, the chairman of, chairman of Legia Warsaw. And he came out with this statement saying, oh, the problem isn't the bid clubs, it's the bid leads. But what he wants is more money for, for the Polish lead. All he cares about is, at best, that the Polish extraclasser is, 
is represented and is, is kind of given a bit of a cash injection. And I would say, to be honest, at worst, he may not even care about that. He probably just cares about Lydia Warsaw. He probably just cares that Lydia Warsaw... So it is, there is nobody... The problem that I have with all of this is there is... And we'll come on to the finals, I guess, later. There is nobody who's actually thinking what's best for the game as a whole. And there is definitely nobody thinking what's best for the fans. And what was um, slightly unfortunate earlier is when Rory gave me the credit for making that incredibly good point, which I'd had a lot of time to write down, unlike all the stream of consciousness, consciousness that comes from his incredibly intelligent mind, is that because I was eating a bagel, I was unable to um, articulate that Stephen had made that point to me on a text, which I then put onto uh, the script. So actually, Stephen, it was... You that made the excellent point. So perhaps you would like to flesh out this kind of if if you are having to have all these kind of con- contrasting and competing priorities. What is that? Is that the biggest the, the biggest paradox that they have? This idea of listen to what we're saying, don't observe what we're doing. In lots of statements on the back of the the Baku decision, or not so much the Baku decision, but the the realization of the the implications of staging a major European final in Baku about you know. The organisation is for the fans. The fans are our number one priority. Well, that is clearly not the case. You cannot for one minute suggest that when you were taking a Europa League final to Baku, to Azerbaijan, which in itself is not a terrible thing, but you cannot say you made that decision for the fans because you must have known that the, the fans of whichever the clubs were competing in that final were not going to be able to get there or not to get there easily because, you know, they they weren't going to be fans of um, Angie Makachkala just up the coast or just across the border in Armenia. They were clearly... They definitely weren't going to be from Armenia. They were clearly going... I think 19 out of the last 20 Europa League finalists have been from Western Europe. Dnipro were the exception yeah. to that when they played Sevilla in the final. And that seems to be that, that Dnipro-Sevilla final seems to be the one that they are using as the example. Well, there wasn't a huge demand for tickets, so we can afford to take it to a bit of a footballing outpost. Rather than looking at the general, the general flow of, of things over recent series, don't pick the exception that proves the point that you want to make. Just accept that when it gets down to these major occasions, if you want to spread the game, you're going to have to find a way of doing so yeah. that also recognises the the reality of the situation you're dealing with in terms of who is going to be playing in that that showpiece occasion. And and that's what I get a little bit infuriated about is that FIFA, UEFA, they both often talk about how football is separate to politics. We we don't allow politics to interfere with our footballing decisions. When those organizations by their very nature are as political as as any major organisation in any sort of sphere of life anywhere in the world. Well, even if, even if they, that's not how they see themselves, ultimately, if you, if you take a country like Azerbaijan, where there are question marks over human rights, where there are question marks over democracy and the, the, the legitimacy of elections, football is allowing itself to be used as a political thing by, just as F1 is, by saying, right, we will go, we will go to Baku, which by all accounts is a very nice city, but you, you, can't, you can't ignore the fact that there are these other issues with, with kind of the freedom of the country. We will go to Baku, and that is a, is a, is a way of sports washing, is the, is the term that's been bandied around a lot recently, of sports washing Azerbaijan's reputation. It is all, well, Baku is obviously the sort of place that can host the Europa League final or host games in Euro 2020. Therefore, it must be all right. That, that's kind of how this whole thing works. It must be, it must be fine. It must be a modern European... Yeah. Place it's Baku is a by all accounts a spectacular place, but I'm not sure that 
Well, I'm sure there's plenty of people in Azerbaijan who might suggest that the country itself is not quite as glittering as the facade of downtown Baku. The What annoys me is the, the stuff that UEFA could do about it relatively easily that they don't. So I don't quite understand why UEFA don't say, right, what, what we're going to do, and it, it doesn't make it, doesn't solve all the problems. And at, at some point, I had a chat with someone from Liverpool the other day who made the point that ultimately fans get ripped off for tickets regardless of who does what because they either get ripped off by the by the the stadium that are hosting it, they get ripped off by UEFA by giving them a terrible allowance. And ultimately, as we've seen with both Liverpool and Spurs in Madrid, they then, if if, if both of those happen or not, they then get ripped off by other fans who buy tickets and then sell them on at massively inflated prices. I think Spurs have issued lifetime bans to people for trying to resell Champions Yeah, which they deserve tickets. great credit for, by the way. Yeah, yeah, for four and a half grand a pop. There are tickets going for five, six, seven grand for Madrid and that ultimately fans will get ripped off. The, the thing about hotels and planes is incredibly annoying the temptation is to say, well, it's it's the market. That's how the market works. But I think, certainly with hotels, UEFA could offset that by saying what we're going to do from now on. They've already introduced a bidding process, which never used to exist for the finals, which is a, which is a step forward. It doesn't appear to be very clear what the criteria in that bidding process are. But I don't understand why UEFA couldn't say, right, we're gonna, we are. There's a fifty thousand seat stadium in whichever city, City X. We are going to give each club an allowance of. 15,000 tickets and then reserve 20,000 for the football family or for locals and we shouldn't forget that locals have a right to go to these games that that's kind of the that's the point of taking them to put someone like back someone like Baku we are going to reserve x number of hotel rooms a year in advance at average prices an array of some luxury some hostels some campsites whatever we're gonna we're gonna find accommodation for maybe not 30,000 people but let's say 50, 10, 15,000 people, whatever, so that there is affordable accommodation on a variety of budgets available. The cities have to do that, and then when the two teams discover that they're winning, Barcelona and Real Madrid, we will then pass the cost on to them. They all have travel departments. The fans will then be able to go through the club if they so wish to get their travel. That I don't, I don't understand why UEFA couldn't come up with some sort of solution like that where the guarantee of accommodation is part of the bidding process. So difficult to police that, isn't it? I mean, without knowing a huge amount about how that sector of business works. Oh, I know works. nothing about it, but I've still got an opinion. No, and, and that's what, but I would imagine that, it, you know, you cannot say, you know, you can't say to the Holiday Inn group, right, we are sequestering your hotels in that city for the duration of these dates and you will only sell those rooms at a certain rate or we will, we will buy those rooms off you at a certain rate that we can pass on. FIFA block book rooms for themselves during World Cups and I think you have a block book rooms for themselves during, at, at, major, at major finals yes but one assumes that they are at a slightly higher rate than what possibly, you yeah, would and, possibly and, and, pass and on. there will be you know at, at the, the number of rooms that they are you know one assumes they have preferred hotel partners who they have got long term working relationships yep. with yeah. which enables and them to do and we know how that. you UEFA work with their sponsors if you're not a sponsor that's it you won't that's be it, part yeah. of the conversation yeah. so. and, and there'll be other you know there'll be other benefits to those hotels from them being official FIFA or UEFA hotels for the duration of the competition people will be coming and going for you know, for functions that are being hosted there. So even if they could have sold those rooms at higher rates on the open market, they'll probably get their money back in other ways. I mean, the thing with the the thing with the flights, of course, is infuriating. Of course it is. And I, uh, John Nicholson wrote a great piece on, on Football 365 about why do we just accept this phrase, market forces? And he's quite right about that. But the reality of the situation is, is a lot of the people who are 
infuriated, upset about the, the cost of a flight to Madrid have probably also benefited from, oh, I had a great trip to Prague for the weekend, played 25 quid each way on EasyJet. It was fantastic. The, the, it, is un, it is an unfortunate consequence of the fact that if airlines are going to sell seats dead cheap to fill up their planes at times when perhaps the going isn't so good, yeah. the, the system is clearly going to be weighted in their favour when they need to try and make a profit on a, on a popular route. Well, again, and not knowing anything about this. So and at a popular time, you know, look at yeah. what people have to pay to go on holiday during school well, holidays. No, no, one, no one really complains about... I get really annoyed the fact that... I mean, I've got a son who's not at school, but if I want to go on holiday in late July, I, for some reason, have to pay more money. You need to travel the world before Ed starts school. That yeah. is my suggestion. Because <laughs> the, after he does, you know, you're, you're, put him in suitcase and get going. The, you're going to campsites in the United Kingdom for the rest of your life. <laughs> the, as long as they're dog friendly, that's not a problem. The, um, the the flight thing I've got to admit doesn't doesn't really annoy me. The, overall, I think if it's in if the finals are in cities that are relatively reachable, a lot of that I imagine is algorithmic. That the, the, the of course the companies is, yeah. will work out... It won't be a human going, right, right I'm going to punish somebody £850. Pounds. It's frustrating, but I know that I know that a lot of... Um, so Speak Airport in Liverpool have got, have got more flights going on the Saturday of the Champions League final than they've ever had before. There have been jets chartered to, to cope with the weight of demand. Apparently, the average price at the moment for to hire a jumbo, or a, like a... I don't know if it's a technically a jumbo, but like a big plane... Is that's the technical term? But probably a um, like It'd a, be a seven three seven, something seven, like that. Seven, the seven, sort seven. the sort of plane you you go on holiday on yeah. is one hundred and twenty five grand, which works out at six hundred quid a pop, which is what people are charging. So I don't think there's a ma- I don't think anyone's gouging fans who are taking those flights. That's just how much it costs to hire a plane. So I think there comes a point where, and this is a really horrible thing to say, but like fans don't have to go. If if you, as an individual you do not you are not compelled to go. So I, I know people who would love to go to Madrid for the Champions League final on both sides of the Liverpool-Spurs divide, but are not going. Either because they've got work commitments or because it's too much money or they couldn't get accommodation or they couldn't get tickets. Like you're not, you're not, it's not compulsory that you have to go. There comes a point where, where the market, and I agree with John but, but that we accept market forces too, too easily, but there comes a point where the market is going to adapt to the, to the changing scenario and you have to make a choice whether you're prepared to go along with that or and, not. And if your determination levels are so high that you have to go regardless of circumstances, then you will be the kind of person who I imagine will plan ahead. And if you're confident that your team is going to be able to get through to the Champions League final, or even, you, you know, you don't necessarily have that confidence, you will book, book flights out to that in advance from a place where that that place hasn't yet been guaranteed for the team. So it won't be quite as expensive. And a lot of people have done that. And if you are a seasoned traveller in Europe, you will know to do that anyway. You will preempt at least, even if it's only by an hour, you can do it halfway through the second half and you will find that you will get huge savings. But if you are therefore so determined to go that you're prepared to do that, then perhaps you're still then even prepared to be paying huge amounts, even if you complain about it. What we have to accept, and Baku is a great example of this, is that ultimately the assumption is that fans will... will will pay whatever, will do whatever, will try however they can to get to games. And ultimately, until there is... It's not to make it the fans' fault, because that's too close to victim blaming, but UEFA, the clubs, the, the people who organise it, the sponsors, whoever, know that the fans will go. They know the fans will will make the trip. It's interesting that Arsenal and Chelsea have both returned quite a lot of their allocation for, for Baku, because that is probably the first time that's ever happened, that two clubs have been given tiny allocations for a European final and said, look... You've messed this up so badly that we can't make it. But until the fans say, we don't want any part of this, you're going to have to change or you lose us, 
there is no incentive for anyone to do anything about it. It, it would be nice to think that Baku was a line in the sand moment in a positive way. And that that might be a reality check in terms of saying there is a limit to what supporters will do to get to a destination. For for a Europa League. For for a Europa League final. Well, even for a Champions League final, it could have been a a similar situation. That will undoubtedly be spun in another way. If there are empty seats in that stadium, oh, well, we don't need such a big stadium for the Europa League final. In the same way as that that was the verdict that was reached after the Dnipro Severe final. Which was in Warsaw. Yeah. Which is really odd because... So that... Was that 2015? That they played Dnipro, I think it was. And then 2016, Liverpool played Sevilla in, in, in Basel in a 30,000-seater. And the stadium was far too small to accommodate it. United won it in 2017 against Ajax, who must be two of the clubs that travel in the biggest numbers in Europe. In the Friends Arena in Stockholm, which I think is 50,000. And again, there were more than that in Stockholm. And then last year you had Marseille. It was in Lyon, which again is 50,000 at Rupama. Marseille against Atletico Madrid, two clubs, obviously Marseille in particular, who were very close. There became this big meme in French football of, of Marseille fans chanting that they were going to ruin Jean-Michel Alice's house. <laughs> and they went in vast numbers. So what's really weird is that UEFA kind of underestimating their own competition. They're, that it's almost like they're thinking, mm, people don't like this Europa but League. What, what, it's almost like they're taking the English, the, the English newspaper's attitude to the Europa <laughs> League to heart. So what, what, my question at the beginning was, who, who are UEFA's pri- priorities? Given that, if they are so concerned about overestimating that they're often underestimating, is there that that much a big deal to what their coffers, their reputation of having an an empty stadium or a three quarters full stadium? Then that is more a damage to their reputation than disenfranchising thousands upon thousands of fans from so many clubs by putting it in a place where it's incredibly difficult to get to. I can't believe that compared to the amount of money that the UEFA make from the Champions League TV rights, that so why, so why are they why are they giving, being so cautious? Giving a final to Baku, which I mean, as far as it's a bidding, it was an open bidding process. As far as we know, there is no there is no evidence whatsoever of any kind of no 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 play. not 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 saying that, but clearly there is a contract but, which means that UEFA are benefit financially benefits from I couldn't, I, staging I, I, any UEFA, final anywhere. UEFA will make money off the final, I guess. And we are we are now entering the fifteenth subject on which we have no expertise. But I can't imagine if you're whichever Visa and Mastercard sponsors the Champions League or Heineken or Amstel or whoever it is. I forget Gazprom. And you, t- you enter into a, a financial agreement with UEFA for, for advertising to be a sponsor of the competition. Th- you're paying that money because you want your adverts on TV. You're not paying it because mm. you want only Gazprom to be served at the final. So I think in, in, in terms <laughs> Here, get of... Get your pint of gas. The, <laughs> drive to Baku in association with Gazprom. The, so Just I, 29 tankfuls to I get you there and back. What I'm trying... What I'm, what, my instinct is that the amount of money that the fi- that, that the finals are worth to UEFA is relatively small, and I, compared to the TV rights. So I can't. It imagine, is relatively I, small, but wouldn't you attempt to maximise that if you had the opportunity to? Possibly, if you were given two see, choices. I don't see how taking it to Baku makes it any. It's in the Europa League finals in Gdansk next year. That's not. I don't think that is their main. I don't think making as much money as possible at the final is their main motivation. I'm sure it's a factor. But so, I don't what, think so what is their priority then? It is is it only spreading the game? Because if the if the downside of it is that it's impossible to, for pretty much all fans to be able to get to Baku, is is there enough of a tangible upside for UEFA to send it to Baku that they can they can put up with all this negativity that they're getting that they must have foreseen because they will know about the ability of Baku Airport to take in. Uh, only a certain amount of flights over two days. Well, that's why they restricted the allocations. Just they knew. They, that's they, why they did that. But they, if they if they knew that that was the case, and therefore they would have to restrict allocations. Wh- at what point down the line do they go? Well, the upside of sending it to Azerbaijan is now being 
outweighed by more now. than outweighed by all the negativity you'll get from either few allocations or even as has happened Chelsea and us not being able to fulfil that allocation I would suggest that we are giving it more thought and have discussed it further than at any point during the process to decide that the final would be staged in Baku <laughs> come on all these, th- all these people do is have meetings I would I, <laughs> look we have to accept that these sorts of organisations when they're making these decisions they are making that decision based on what's best for the organisation I, yeah, I, I can't believe for one minute and not the fans, yeah. you mean, as opposed you, you, to the you fans. You can't... If they were aware two years ago when they, when they awarded the finals of Baku that the capacity of the airport was 15,000 people to cover the, the duration of that occasion, that should have been the end of it. Well, we simply can't stage it there. The stadium holds 60,000 people. The capacity of the airport is 15,000 people. And there is literally no other way of getting to this place, not sensibly. We can't stage the final there. Which is So there must have been a reason there must have been something about that decision that benefited UEFA. Which you have to assume, again, with no evidence of foul play, is political. That it's a, there is a political benefit to UEFA in giving it to being seen to give a, a major final, it's it's sort of second showpiece game to a country like Azerbaijan. That is there must be some sort of political benefit to that. I agree with you. I'd, I'm amazed that, that 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 political benefit could possibly outweigh kind of the, the practical well, maybe, embarrassing consequences. Maybe they don't mind, foresee any negativity because they're kind of stuck in their own world a little bit. They have changed it, as I say, so that, that it is a bidding process. So it's not like under Platini where they just kind of, Platini decided, right, you've been nice to me, so you get this final. Which is how I think every final until up, up to Cardiff was decided, that that there was there was a kind of opaque process at work within UEFA to say, well, we'll give it to them. Whereas there is now an open bidding process, which actually make, which is a, a good thing, but makes the decision to give the Europa League final to Baku even more baffling. Just yeah. as just as it did giving the, to be perfectly honest, giving the Champions League final to Kiev, just Kiev did not cope. After Cardiff, UEFA decided that the Champions League final has basically become a Super Bowl, and that only a certain number of cities can host it. There is you, Cardiff was was swamped by. I think they had to run extra trains to London at four in the morning to get the fans out. I think they, there were a lot of people who ended up staying in Bristol, which people, fans of geography will notice, is not in the same country as Cardiff. <laughs> uh, and it's just a swim away, though. It is. I mean, they were, and they were providing uh, buoyancy aids. But the, the Car- Cardiff was... Too, Armbands, at the very least. Cardiff was too small to host the Champions League final. And UEFA re- worked that out. But they then gave it to Kiev, which is a much bigger city and, a, and a, a, has kind of had a greater capacity, I think. But at the same time, the accommodation situation was dreadful. The flight situation was awful because there was the limit of how many planes should land or whatever at the airport. It they was had really the slots away. issue, didn't they? they had the that slots. was where the slots issue was. So UEFA are running this bidding process, but I would love to know what you actually have to do as part of a bid for UEFA to go, no, that won't work. Because as you say, if, if you can submit a bid and say, well, actually, we can't really, can't really get any fans in, and they go... Ah, the rest of it looks good, then that suggests the bidding process is not working very well. And also, there might not have been that many... In their defence, there might not have been that many or suitable alternatives to to Baku in that bidding process. Belfast met, always the, applies. <laughs> yes, but apart from but that, that's mainly for the Super Cup, isn't it? Yeah. Not for the Europa League final. I think the advantage of Madrid... So I, 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 the Champions League final is, is in the right sort of city. I think there's a reason we've not really touched on the ticket prices, which is that those like hyper-expensive tickets can't really be justified. The fact that the 
I think the, the bulk of the tickets are are the, are the lower price. Three, four, and sixty quid. So is they were written A to D, and it made it look like there were equal amount of everything. And it, I don't think it's that. It's massively more weighted. In the the the, 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 the cheaper tickets are the tickets that are more available. Which is which is fine. You question whether sixty pounds is cheap enough. Maybe it's not. But again, there comes a point where if fans will pay it. Then, does you, if you wait for said right, well, the tickets have to be thirty quid. What if a team from a country where thirty pounds is still quite a lot of money for a ticket gets to the final and says, "Hang on, this is outrageous. Everything is perspective." So ultimately, th- there does come a point where, in a market economy, the market is going to define it a little bit. The fact that the majority of sixty quid is good, you can't you can't justify spending three hundred charging people three hundred fifty quid a ticket. But uh, if we consider all the stuff we talked about, how little fans matter, it doesn't really come as a surprise that you wait for thinking about changing the Champions League does it really when those proposals were released this is this is a to be not to parrot UEFA's view but this is a process I wonder whether there's a slight element of that politician's trick of releasing the worst case scenario so that whatever follows looks like a bit of a win but there's no question that the ECA and the big clubs particularly on the continent want changes they want to make more money from the Champions League the fact that the that I think most fans would probably look at the Champions League and think do you know what it's pretty good as it is, don't, don't mess about with it, is irrelevant to everybody involved because ultimately the, 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 the feeling will be that just as fans will get to Baku or will pay 400 quid a ticket or will do this, that or the other, fans will watch. That's the, that is the problem. And until fans, without preaching, are able to set aside tribalism, realise that they are the people who hold the power within the game, that everything rests on the supporters because that's where all the money comes from, and that they have that, they they do have an influence. Nothing will really change because you away from the clubs and the leagues and whoever can can do what they want and people swallow it. But I, whilst accepting that, you know, you you constantly need to be thinking about moving forward. You know, if you, you're standing still, you're going backwards, all that nonsense. Why you can't look? We we very recently discussed how the Champions League had become the go-to competition for the level of drama that perhaps had disappeared a little bit out of the domestic game of late with with one or two dominant clubs. And yet here we are now having a conversation about why would you want to change that? Why would you not look at what has happened in the Champions League over the last couple of seasons and think, we've got the drama, we've got a level of the unexpected that has crept in because of the perhaps reality of those competing in the competition to understand that you need a little bit of, luck, bit of luck along the way. So you might as well go out there and try and earn that bit of luck rather than wait for it to manifest itself. So I agree with Rory in that clearly this is, well, if we put a little bit of information out there, either get give people the opportunity to get used to it before we implement it or, or as you say, maybe dilute it a little bit so it won't won't seem so bad but we've had wonderful stories wonderful surprises the fact that you know Tottenham and Ajax played each other in a a semi-final is just extraordinary in the context of of the modern game that you know Juventus and Real Madrid were both knocked out by a team of you know young upstarts and one or two players who perhaps thought that their best days were behind them and suddenly here they are playing in a in a major European semi-final why tinker too much with that? In fact, if anything, why not go looking for a little bit more mm. of the unexpected? Why not tweak the competition so that there's a greater opportunity for the likes of the next Ajax to come along and take the competition by storm? Why would you want to squeeze those potential storylines out of happening? Is it partly, though, 
the fact that we have assigned agency to UEFA in all the conversation we've had so far about the fact that they are thinking of self-interest, they are thinking about how best to maximise their influence, their ability to make money, um, their um, the positive PR that might come their way, the brand, but actually is the, 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 the decision to tinker with potentially change... Uh, the Champions League about self-preservation because of yeah. the threat of the ECA and the clubs and, the, and yeah. the leagues wanting to strengthen their position. And this is now suddenly them being, instead of uh, proactive in terms of trying to increase their own abilities to make money and all that self-interest, they are they are being reactive to what is a threat to them. And so they're having to concede ground because they genuinely think that threat yeah, is worth taking... taking um, Interesting. Because every time that there's a TV deal up for, for renegotiation or every time there's a re- resetting of the European calendar in 2024, which is when apparently they have to decide on the next 10 years, I think, of how, how things will look, um, the ECA, and not, not necessarily actually just the ECA, that, that's maybe an oversimplification, the powerful voices within the ECA. I'd love to know how some of the clubs in the ECA feel about this. Just they don't all benefit from it. Not the top, like, 16 or 14 or whatever it is. It's, it tends to be dominated. It might be slightly unfair, but I think it tends to be that sort of Juve, Bayern Munich, Barca and Real, Milan, they, the English ones, they all they all make their minds up and everyone else is kind of dragged along with them. I'm not, I'm not sure whether there's unanimity. But UEFA basically every, every few years have to give a little bit more away, which is why we've now got four guaranteed spots for four, for mm. four leads in the Champions League. Um, they have to give a little bit more away because every so often th- those clubs come around and say, look, we'll break away. We, will, we don't need you anymore. It's like a player comes to the end of his contract. He, yeah. he, he uses something else or another club, the interest of another club, it, whether, yeah. Yeah, whether it's real or not, to get a better contract out of his current employers. So I guess what we have to ask as fans is, do we feel that our interest and the interest of the game, capital T, capital G, are best represented by UEFA, which we know is a flawed organisation that makes terrible decisions at times, such as hosting Europa League finals in Baku, and we have established does not necessarily have the fans' best best interest at heart when it makes those decisions, or do we trust ourselves more in the hands of businesses that are essentially existing purely to make money for themselves? For, n- which not is, not which, even a group of people, which, just them. Which is better? The That's big- the problem. The big clubs need to be careful about the the balance, the, the football ecosystem. If you try and push yourself so far out in front of everyone else that there's now there's no jeopardy. There's no logjam of clubs behind looking to to take advantage of any slip ups you might make. But the House of Cards does potentially come tumbling down because there are there are certain reasons why football is such a popular sport globally and why sports in North America, for example, are desperately trying to make inroads into other marketplaces by taking their product there and, and attempting to sell it. They would love to be, in many ways, more like football. They'd love to have that element of anything is possible. But because of the structures in place in in their leagues, it it isn't going to happen. Football doesn't want to kettle itself into a position where suddenly it's just 20 elite clubs who have absolutely no threat to their position amongst that elite. Well, like a franchise system, essentially, yeah. Yeah, you know, historical franchises. You know, the fact that AC Milan are part of this conversation is frankly laughable at the moment. Not to say they're not a, a, a giant club and, you know, whenever I've covered games involving AC Milan in Syria there is a sense of occasion 
but through an awful lot of their own fault, they are not part of the top table but at the that, moment. So they shouldn't. They certainly shouldn't be looking to leverage. But that's why they're themselves. trying to do it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly but, why they're trying. To but do that's it. why you've got to be careful. You can't. You know, we we had that conversation, didn't we, about you know a reset top flight of English football. Maybe we should have a conversation about a reset European elite League. of yeah. European a 30, European a 32 football. teams but yeah the, should be in a reset but Champions the other League. thing that you need to that they need to be careful with and Steve's quite right is that if you do run away if you do walk off and I think I, to me it's inevitable at some point they will at some point this UEFA will have no more to give basically UEFA will be forced to say we can't meet those demands and the clubs will have to decide whether they're, that, that, whether they're serious or whether they're not and if they decide they're not then suddenly the, the power balance shifts completely away from them because UEFA know it's an empty threat but the clubs maybe should be careful of the example of Milan and teams like that because someone has to be mid-table in the European Super League. You're not all going to win it. So what What are Manchester United or Liverpool or Arsenal or Chelsea when they're finishing 14th or when they're, when they're mid-table in the second division of the new Champions League? Is that is that good for them? I don't know if it is, to be honest. I think it's probably better for them, for their reputations, for their brands to maybe occasionally get knocked out in the group stages of the Champions League. Or to League. miss it, to not even or be in not it even for a year, and then come to back. compete the and next year. You look at Liverpool, who hadn't made a, who barely made the Champions League for 10 years. Between, I think they were in it once, weren't they, between 2010 and 2017. And they're suddenly in two finals. Now, that is probably better in terms of making them a popular club, but, you know, all that brand expansion, all, all that stuff. Probably better for them to do that than to do what Arsenal did for all those years, which was just be in the Champions League. And then get knocked out of the Champions League. Be in the Champions League, get knocked out of the Champions League. Last 16, last 16. Quarterfinal, last 16. It's probably better to not be in it or to, or to yeah, and, and then to sort of come roaring back into it and make a couple of finals or make a couple of semis so that you are you are really getting the attention. I think, I think it's, it's just to consistently be there getting beaten by Juventus. It's, it's better to get into a final regardless whether you've been there or not, I guess. And that, that's, well, no, but that's what the part. I mean is that if you, if you think about what, they, what these proposals are kind of leading towards, it's more of a lead structure. So presumably there'd still be knockout rounds at the end of it, but the the lead structure is means that most of the teams will be mid-table teams, and no one likes watching mid-table teams, whatever table that's in. That ultimately you lose you lose luster. So after a while, maybe maybe AC Milan might be there, but if they're finishing thirteenth, what's what what that's no good to them. Manchester United against AC Milan has to have something riding on it yeah. for it to be a big game. And as you suggest, if it's 13th versus 14th and there's nothing to play for, it's not going to be a big game anymore. Whereas if, you know, at the moment, you know, that could potentially be a a game in the in the Europa League quarterfinals. And hey, one of them's got to win it to make sure they get back in the Champions League next year. That seems a bit more enticing to me. It's 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 enticing in theory for the prospect of the meeting for the first time in any European Super League, but for the second, the third, yeah, the 15th. When, when it doesn't really matter. No. So I think I think that a lot of people, no doubt, will be listening to the wise words that we've been able to create uh, today on Set Piece Menu, and I just get the impression that, you know, leading European clubs and all of UEFA, take heed, pay attention, because I think there's been some, some nuggets here which will help shape the future of football that I imagine haven't even been thought about by any of those people, those decision makers at the very top of the game. So, well done us. Yeah, I agree. Do you know, it's been a quite a high-level discussion. I wonder why that is. It feels as though it's a, it's a discussion that's been, been built on an absence rather than a presence, don't you think? <laughs> so we haven't been dragged down. But even though it's not here, there is still time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story, because this is when Andy, live, as live, or pre-recorded, tells us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. Greetings, everyone. This is the mighty Chinch talking to you from the past, which is, which is very funny indeed, because this story I have is the most recent story i probably ever done. My son, my youngest son, Daniel, 
came home uh, to see his father, obviously, because we're very close and have something to eat. Now, Dan is a working man. He's nearly 22. He's, um, he's a bit more outgoing than I was at 22. He, he's, he's a man about town, very popular with the ladies. Mm. He There's, is very good looking. He's I a very good looking very boy. Very good looking. And his, his girlfriends, if you can call them girlfriends, uh, do... More than one? They... they at uh, uh, one time, yes. He, um, he comes up with many, many names for who he is courting. Okay. And so we're having, some, we're having a chat, and I said, oh, how's work going? Great, great. How's, how's the love life, Dan? And he said, oh, yes, I've met this uh, lovely young lady, Sophie. Oh, lovely, very nice. So a bit more time passes, and then he says, oh, by the way, Dad, um, Sophie's granddad uh, was apparently involved in football in some way. And I said, oh, interesting. So, again, a bit of time passes. Dan, you know he's talked about Sophie's granddad was involved in football. What's his What's his name? Um, oh, it's Ron something. Ron something. Can you? Yeah. Can you find out? Do you know what his surname is? Um, no, I'm not sure. So can you just text Sophie now and find out what her granddad's name is? Yeah, I'll do that for you. So again, I'm thinking, Ron, this this could be slightly disturbing. Mm. Oh, she's just texting me back, Dad. What's uh, What's her granddad's name? Ron Atkinson. There's the punchline. Ron Ron Atkinson. The Ron Atkinson. Oh, she sent me a picture as well of her and her granddad on holiday in Spain. And there's a place. It's Ron Atkinson. (laughs) So, wait wait a minute. If this develops into love and marriage. And children. uh, Ron and and I. Shared genes. What what relation are we? Uh, What's the chances? What are the chances? Of that happening. Are you technically in-laws in that situation? I don't know. The, well, you know how Sergio Aduero's son, Benjamin, is the son of Sergio Aduero and the grandson of Diego Maradona? It's a very similar situation, isn't it? it is, I would here. say exactly the same situation. Yeah. That's it, that is exactly the same, yeah. You yeah. would immediately become the first family of football, I would. But I then, the, the even more worrying was when he said, oh, when she stayed over at mine. And I thought, I don't want to know the ins and outs of that. He said, no, no, she wasn't too concerned about that. She looked upon the wall and there was the picture of her granddad and me when I signed for Sheffield Wednesday, arm in arm, <laughs> up on the wall of the bedroom. That been really... At the Atkinson house. And she house. said... Oh, no, at Dan's house. At Dan's house. Right. I was going to say, Ron Atkinson oh, by the way, that as a memento oh, no, 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 no. lengthy career. <laughs> His greatest signing. It's because the plate of Kit Kats was genuinely the biggest. So we have to say, oh, by the way, there's my granddad on the wall there. And that's how it all went for the book. Again, Dan, why didn't you tell me this immediately? Yeah, yeah. Why draw it out? Oh, oh, I think he's involved in football. Do you, do you bless oh. the union? I don't know. Where, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What's your relationship? Just imagine Ron, how talented the children would be. Though. But what's your Unbelievable. relationship? Unbelievable. Did you and Ron get on? Oh, yeah. He gave me a really good contract. I liked him for that. <laughs> Do you want an extra year? Very well paid. Mm, go on then, Ron. I'll have that four and a half year contract rather than three and a half years. I liked him immensely. So it wouldn't, but, be, awkward, it wouldn't be awkward at the ceremony? Who knows? Uh, oh, it's a tricky one, isn't it? That, I, I, what would I call? I couldn't call him Ron. Because I don't call Joe Royal Joe. What do you call him? I don't really call him anything. I don't call him Gaffer anymore because clearly he's not, he's not my name. I'm 50 years old, so why would I do that? But again, I, I just I don't call them anything because to me it would be a bit, I don't know, it's a bit A lot of footballers have this problem is when they Mr. meet. Atkinson. Not Mr. Atkinson. It's a bit too formal, isn't it? Ronald. R.A. <laughs> um, Gaffer. What do I do? No, no, no. no. Big Ron. Big Ron. But I can't call him Big Ron, big. could I? And big Ron. Ron. He is big and he is called so Ron, I, but no, I, I wouldn't do that. I'd, I'd just not call him anything. I have just, a question. Just to be on the safe side. So in Dan's room, yes. there is a picture of 
you, myself, and Ronald, and Ron, yes, and in Dan's room at that time, yes, with Ron's granddaughter, yeah. and your son, yes, playing Monopoly or something similar. Would you ever imagine that in any other situation, <laughs> two young people would have been playing Monopoly, yeah, with both grandfather of one and father looking on? Maybe our listeners could say this is this is normal. What is the most awkward sexual encounter you've ever had? <laughs> I just found why did it take so long for me to find out? And then the way it was just kind of as if it's fine. You do know he signed me and I he was my boss. Why yeah, well yeah, I have that picture on the wall, so I did realise eventually. Eventually should be the first thing. Is he good looking but not the brightest Dan? Um he is very good looking and he is an intelligent but lazy boy. Right, okay. Mm. I I just wonder how um uh, anti-motivational that picture might have been and the yes. lights might have very quickly gone off and the, yeah. the, the passing of the Monopoly money from, from bank to contestant well, 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 let's, in the darkness. They, let's, let's they moved to hotels.com quite quickly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's available locally. So that is Chinch's soccer story from the past, which ironically was his most contemporaneous and we just managed to date it a week to make it less so. If you have a soccer story, please send them to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also get in touch via Twitter or Facebook. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory and Steve and Andy, 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 Andy. And thanks to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. It'd be awkward if we dated it so much that, that Dan isn't going out with Ron Atkinson. Oh, yeah, Dan's, Dan's dating life is so prolific that seven days days is just you know he's already well, moved through to several to other David several other granddaughters of famous former english i've never met dan I'm, I'm intrigued although we probably shouldn't i mean just on the off chance that, that his amour is listening we probably shouldn't say that he he's he has a prolific love life that would be we are a big hit in that sort of demographic i don't know people so related to Ron high. <laughs> <laughs> that, is our, that is our core demographic